HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and this is a show about food, politics, and identity. Very excited. This is our first show back uh, after taking a break. It's the beginning of the fall season, and it's the first show of our second season. So I'm very, very happy to be here. I have two guests in studio today. Uh, my guests are Nazar Jabber, and I have Jabber Al-Bahini, and together they are uh, partners, and they run a, an amazing organization called Comida, which is a platform for interactive food experiences. So welcome to the show. Thank Nazar, you so much. Thank Naz, you. if I can call you that. Yeah, and Jabber. Um, so why don't you guys explain together like what Comida is? So um, Comida is an experience, uh, an element of how we're redefining the culture of food, the restaurant tastings, uh, chef-led pop-ups, um, impactful uh, food experiences such as our Refugee Food Festival, the Displaced Kitchens. What we're doing is bringing substance to the food we eat through stories and kind of uh, human connectivity. And we bring people together, break bread, learn about one another, learn about the food they eat, and also support the local businesses and creatives in their community. And Naz, you um, are a partner at Comida, but you also own a restaurant. Yeah, Mazesh on the Lower East Side. Yeah, so how, like, what's the overlap between those two? Well, actually, when we started uh, with Mazesh, it was a Palestinian Latino restaurant on the Lower East Side, um, showcasing Palestinian food from the diaspora in South America. And uh, every week I was doing a dinner called From Ramallah to Bogota, 
which uh, we were showcasing the food. And are there, sorry to interrupt, are there a lot of Palestinians in South America? Yeah, um, there's a half a million right in Chile alone. Um, there's probably 1.5 that will say they're also Palestinian descent. Those are people that left before 1948. Post-1948, there's probably around $500,000. My entire town was displaced between Chile, Colombia, and Panama. I didn't realize that South America was yeah. kind of a it's the an, biggest hub an immigrant after the destination world. for Palestinians. Oh, oh yeah, Chile in particular is the largest Palestinian presence after the Arab world. Do you know what the reasoning for that would be? Well, in the turn of the century, actually, the uh, Brazil was a, an, a either a kingdom or empire, and that king or emperor came to the, sult- the Ottoman Sultan and told him he needs farmers. So the Ottoman Sultan in the town, this is before 1914, before World War I, um, started gentrifying uh, Levant area, which is Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. started with the Christian towns and then, you know, m- more slowly the Muslim towns as well, and gave the lands to the Turks. Eventually, the empire falls. Um, and then, you know, 1948 happens for us. Israel gets created. And whoever had a cousin in one of those cities ended up immigrating there as well. So there was a wave of immigration over three periods. Hmm. Come 1967, there's a six-day war. And then the entire country was annexed. And then, with that in mind, everybody who had someone went somewhere else. Um, so South America, Bejala, it contains a lot of population from Bejala, Betsahur, Bethlehem, uh, Nazareth. Uh, it's usually those villages that went first. And then there was Bang villages in the 1967. So Derdwan, Termosaya, Sinjil, a lot of those ended up. So my grandfather was in Brazil for 25 years alone. Oh, okay. So you're Brazilian-Palestinian. Well, no. I mean, I don't identify as you know, Brazilian. I identify as 100% Palestinian. Mm-hmm. It's just that. Uh, and I also didn't grow up, you know, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the family, all my cousins have been there. Even in our town, um, the food is a mix between Palestinian and Latino. For example, on weddings, you'll see some of our grandmothers who don't know how to read and write, and they'll make you pastelitos, like on a drink. What's that? That is like the empanadas, mm. um, you know, that they you know, make. And uh, you'll see them talking to their grandkids in Spanish and yelling at them. It's just really bizarre That's sometimes. So <laughs> in, a, in a traditional Palestinian embroidered dress. Like, this is, wow. It's not a... Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. Also, um, you know, we have such strong ties. Like in our town, they, Venezuela, before the economic crisis, built uh, an ear and eye uh, hospital. Uh, the Panamanian, Panamanian ambassador is always in the town, um, hopefully, like, seeking, you know, support from the community because there's a lot of them that are in Panama. So it's interesting. That is really interesting. That was a great little tangent. I totally interrupted you talking Sorry, about no. Mazash. No, my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah you, were t- you were talking about um, the overlap between... Uh, yeah, Comida and Mazash. Yeah. So uh, when we were referred to our first refugee, you know, I was already doing the dinners and they were selling out. So I was just like, why don't you just take the kitchen on slow days? I'll keep the restaurant open for delivery. Cook Syrian food. And that's sure. the, the displaced dinner series that yeah. you're referring to. Exactly, yeah. Which all started all of this. And we didn't really expect for it to grow this big, right? It was just to help out one refugee who needed work, who was about to be homeless, and uh, it was a way for him just to earn some money, and we'll figure out what happens next. Okay, you guys are like three steps ahead, which is yeah, which yeah, is yeah. great. I love yeah. hearing the story, but like to take it back for people listening who haven't done their homework, which you know, how could that be? Yeah. Um. So, so you guys have a displaced dinner series that you do, which is an opportunity. It's a collaborative effort between Comida and a refugee chef, and they take over a restaurant space, in this case, Mozesh, which is your restaurant that you mm-hmm. own, and they cook the food of their heritage. Yeah, correct. And it's an opportunity for them to reach out to the community and like also make a little money. Yeah, and share their story. And share their story. Yeah. So all, you know, it's like a 
win, win, win. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I want to talk about that, but I, I also just want to hear a little bit more of like your individual stories, like where both of you came from and like just how, like what happened? How did Comita get started? Yeah. Um, so born and raised in uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Brooklyn? Uh, to Yemeni immigrants. Um, left Brooklyn for uh, Temple University uh, to study civil engineering. Uh, spent four and a half years there, got my master's. And then afterwards, I uh, traveled, headed out to Europe. And I'm not the first to say this, but a lot of people have had the, uh, the, the, the privilege to have a great experience with other people over food. Right? <laughs> Just every, like a lot of people have that story, but not yeah. many get that opportunity. Right. And um, so while I was in Barcelona, uh, yeah, staying at a hostel, the, the lead hostel manager kind of gathered everybody who missed breakfast and took them out for lunch. So uh, as we were traveling and walking through, we were walking through Las La, La Ramblas, and uh, he was telling us about the history. And eventually we just make our way into this little shanty run by an older uh, couple who was hosting us for lunch. Uh, we sat down. We are all engaging with one another, all strangers. And then... Uh, this older couple just came, started engaging with us, telling us their story, hanging out. No menu, no nothing. I guess like 30 minutes into us just hanging out, food just started coming out over and over and over and over. Uh, 12 different tapas. They explained the process of how each one was made. A lot of them were things we've never had before. We were just super immersed with the food, but then super attentive to the stories associated with it. So, you know, it was like a three-hour experience by the time it was done it was done and we we're just like oh what a great experience here um so i finished my travels in europe i moved back to new york uh i got i started my career as a geotechnical engineer um uh, was there for four and a half years um but in the middle of all that uh i figured let me try to recreate that experience i had in barcelona in new york and uh i was starting doing it reaching out to a few restaurants that i had a relationship with and after 50 dinners, I identified that, you know, there's a lot of people who really want something like this, what, we're, what we've been creating. So validated everything. Um, and then I decided, all right, let's start a company. Uh, so we built out our website. I onboarded my partner, Billy. Uh, he built out the website. Um, and then after we launched, uh, me and Nasser kind of reconnected. Uh, we went to Baruch together before I ever went to Temple. I was there for three semesters. We had a relationship there. Got back, launched Comida. Uh, somebody told me that they had a restaurant, reached out to him, and we started working together, just from by me providing our service. And then Nasser was just so, uh, he was using the tool to the way that I wanted it to, right? Just kind of help me spread my message, help me bring in consumers and all this, so supporting a restaurant. And then after some time, we were working closer and closer. The election came along, you know, uh, 45 came in. And then we were sitting, having like lunch one day. that shall not be named on this oh, show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, we sat down, and then uh, the travel ban, the Muslim ban, came about, and we were reading about it, and we thought, what could we do? Right? And then the magic of this place, dinners, came about, me and him having a conversation. Uh, he knew a refugee, Lutfi, who uh, needed some help. And then I'll let Nasser take it from here. Okay. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically that's what happened, except that um, 
I guess what I was trying to do with with comida in, in particular is b- take it beyond people coming, strangers coming to eat together at a restaurant and having an amazing food experience, right? The idea would be how can you have an impactful experience and learn about your surroundings, right? And you do that when you travel. So you go on tours, you visit art, you do whatever you do, but there's always a food element involved. So one of the things I was doing with Comida that is not necessarily social impact was basically, for example, graffiti tours or food tours within Jackson Heights when we talk about immigration and how these waves come about. And this about. is before the election? This is, before. yeah. but Well, before the election happened, but during the, the process when they were mm-hmm. like, you know, campaigning. The rhetoric. Yeah. yeah. And I had a sign outside of Mazesh that said, eat our delicious food before Trump kicks us out. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then an Israeli restaurant posted it on their page, which was really funny. So we had yeah. uh, our own debate on it. <laughs> But um, anyhow, so the idea would be is that experience the city, learn about what you're consuming, right? And then eat delicious food. Um, I was doing that prior in college, actually. I did finance and economics, dual degree. Um, well, Berg doesn't have a dual degree, but two bachelors <laughs> back to back. Um, and the end result was I focused on uh, food prices. You know, back in 2008, energy prices were soaring because of alternative fuel and people were not eating cereal goods. So people who were eating, you know, three times a day decreased to one time a day. So those are important. You have to understand that food is very politicized. Growing up in the Arab world, I grew up in a in the Middle East where the food for oil program was something of a reality. You know, in Iraq, after the first Gulf War, they starved the country and they had to exchange food and medicine for oil. Uh, right now, Qatar, you know, is under siege, right? And they import 80% of their food. Gaza, also under siege. They're on a very, what the Israeli ministers called a very strict diet, right? So mm-hmm. a lot not many goods come in. Palestinian farmers also face, you know, water issues. Actually, now the entire negotiation within the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is not even about land anymore. It's about water access. Mm. So food has always been a very much an, uh, an unspoken component of our daily reality. And then we, we speak about it some more. So I try to bring that within Kamita. I try to bring out how food can have such an impactful experience, whether it was for fun or entertainment or for politics, or whatever the case may when be. When did your family come to the United States? Well, my family didn't come to the United States. I came. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, okay. two weeks before 9-11. Um, oh. The only reason I have this accent is because I was lucky enough to go to a Quaker American high school in Palestine. Were you like, shit, I'm going back after 9-11? Well, here's what happened, really. I was very excited to come to the United States because growing up, I knew more about the Salem witch hunt trials, more about than my own identity. Then I land here, and uh, I'm told, no, you don't belong, right? Absolutely. And which, you had your 16th anniversary yeah, two days ago. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was really tough. Um, I was accepted to a school upstate New York, and I didn't have the money to go. The intifada was also happening at the time. My parents didn't have their income. So I ended up having to work to support them. So overnight, I went from exchange student or whatever the case may be, because the school I went to back in Palestine only accepted like the upper class of society or the upper middle class. And I wasn't one of them. It just happened to be in that circle, and I got into the school. Um, but, you know, you end up being an economic migrant in the Bronx, in Parkchester Avenue for, yeah. in particular. So it's like you realize that poverty doesn't really distinguish between, you know, white, black, brown, whatever. Yeah, well um, So it was, it's a poverty issue. And of course, with that, you know, I was like, okay, uh, what's next? I ended up going to Brook, 
where I studied finance because somebody gave me a book called The Culture of Success by Goldman Sachs where I wanted to be a banker. And <laughs> actually, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, no, I mean, <laughs> but the entire book was actually about Jay Aaron, which was their commodities trading desk, which are what really made the bank soar and made a lot of money, which commodities for the most part had been like food and future, like things like that, right? That's really what made the money. Um, and I wanted to be that, but as soon as I entered school and uh, learned uh, the Milton Friedman style of economics that they teach, I realized that maybe it's not so much for me, you know, because you yeah. always have to go back and rethink about um, your roots. Like, for example, when we talk about economic aid packages, a lot of them come in terms of food. So, for example, with Egypt, right when the revolution started and Sisi took over and the Obama administration, you know, was, of course, trying to uh, spread, like, human rights and things like that in the region, which we have failed to do multiple times, although it's the right thing to do. Um, Egypt, I think, was three months away from running out of wheat supply. Mm. So imagine, like, there's a country that has the Nile and they can grow all the crops they want. They were the breadbasket of the region, yeah. imports most of their food from California. So we really have to think about these things and take them into consideration when we discuss anything because that's really what it is. When people starve, it's what happens. Yeah. I, I mean, I just wonder, like, are you experiencing any sort of whiplash, like, coming to the United States right after 9-11, being in New York as, you know, this like fresh off the boat, Middle yeah. Eastern person, and then being Shout like... Shout out to Eddie Wong. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then being like, okay, we finally got through it. Obama, like we're all, you know, we're past that point in history. And then to be sort of returning with the same kind of narrative. Well, not really. Uh, I think most people don't... There's a death of intellectualism in the country. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, with that in mind, people shouldn't be surprised at what's happening. You know, um, I will tell you this. You know, coming in here, I didn't get like a whiplash from Americans. Americans have been very accepting of me. But on the media, right, we see only like people who attack people who look like me. Because that's what get eyeballs on television. There are so many people doing good things, right? There are so many. I think there are more good-hearted, let's say, Americans than people who are the, the racist ones and whatnot. You look, think that. I do. That's, I, that's I really, nice I yeah. really believe that. But, you know, they don't get necessarily the same amount of attention mm -hmm. or media coverage. So, of course, we think the world is now turning all alt-right, you know? To be honest with you, one time I was, you know, when I was working in a restaurant when I was in college, I met, you know, a farmer who grows apricots in California, and um, he was like, you know, I'm talking about this is a Republican, you know, regular, like, farmer to the core, right, into the Republican ideals. But when I grew up in a village, so when we started talking about farming, about the, the things that we face together, the issues that we face, I realized we were actually more the same. Mm -hmm. I understand that he's trying to feed his family. I understand why, for example, people who work are working in factories are now going to go vote for, the, for Trump. Simply what happened was, is that in the 70s, you could be a middle-class American worker, buy a home, send your kids to college, and have a decent living. At one point, Reagan brought the Soviet prime minister at the time to show him what a working American-class neighborhood looks like. <laughs> now, we don't have that anymore because that has been completely destroyed. People are losing their jobs. And when you can't afford to feed your family, of course, you're going to blame it on someone else. You're going to blame migrants. You're going to blame whoever the case may be. And it's not necessarily new. Europe has been doing that for a long time. I mean, people forget that in 2006 there was bread riots in Paris, right? Because mm. the Moroccans in Marseille were not, or the Algerians, or the Arab, my French, were not necessarily getting any work. And they're blamed for everything that is wrong in the country. Yeah. Wine riots, too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so how has, how has Comida changed since the election? I guess it, it probably affects more of, like, your, your mission. Yeah, um, 
I guess it, it allowed me to, to step back mm-hmm. and just kind of looking at it as a, as a startup, as like a business, and find a way to use it as a tool, a neutral tool, right, to get people to, to see new perspectives and engage and be a little, be a little more enriched in a cultural sense. Um, and that's kind of been a focus of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, since Nasser has been kind of fully on board with Comida, uh, there's been a significant shift with regards to our approach and what we do. And we, we're we learning that we could identify problems and solve them simply by putting food on a table. Hmm. Um, like with the displaced kitchens, which is one one element of what we're doing that's that was our baby with regards to the social good dining movement that we're trying to do in november we're hoping to start our supper salute right Uh, with a lot of military veterans who are here who are in the culinary world give them a platform let them share their story you know share what they've been through in the world with people who want to hear them um you know it's not just migrants and refugees who get here and are you know, struggling with a lot. It's also veterans, and it's also other marginalized groups. And we hope with time and resources we can be able to amplify that through what we're doing with food. And another thing what we're doing is kind of bringing in people who are very curious, mm. right? And, you know, they could have any political affiliation, but they, they feel comfortable coming to this table and hearing something different. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure uh, Nas experienced one of the dinners where uh, there was a Black Lives Matter a uh, supporter and a uh, 45 supporter at the table. At one of your dinners? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this place, hmm. uh, dinners. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you want to tell them about it? How that went yeah, down? I mean, uh, after hearing the story, you know, the gentleman was like, you took the hatred out of my heart. What made the gentleman attend the dinner in the first place? His daughter. She brought him. Who's, oh. like, you know, very liberal oh, okay. in New York. So she was, like, trying to do something there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like... We've had a variety of uh, people who came to support refugees that you were not expecting. To, you know, to yeah. give you an example, like Lutfi, although from Syria, he's here because of his sexual orientation. There is a lot to talk about, maybe for another podcast, about the dual uh, stand, the double standard of American foreign policy regarding the resettlement of refugees. Because in the country, would say we are against this, 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 and that. For example, like Forty Five is very much against you know LGBTQ rights, right? Yet, in terms of resettlement, we go to the world and say. Well, we support, we're an open society, we support the LGBTQ rights, and of course we're going to take in, you know, migrants of sexual orientation, right? So, I mean, there's something to talk about that with that. But however, Lutfi, um, who had the dinner, had 10 hijabi girls from NYU come support him. And I also had another refugee from Syria who was hijabi, who was back due on her rent, and I had 10 Republican lawyers for the most part, I believe they're Republican. You know, they're like very Wall Street-like, you know, who are, you know, came back and helped her pay back her due rent. So, you know, ultimately, I believe humanity prevails, right? I think when they hear the story, people can relate. I don't think that people are all good or all bad. Sure, there are some people who are like that. But I believe that once you hear the story, it becomes a different situation. It's, It's natural to empathize. Yeah. Kind of with them. And, you know, we've hosted over 40 dinners and all the hugs and exchange of contact of information and, and the emotional support. It's just... It's hard to argue that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, last, the last dinner, last that this Friday, the Friday before that, I had an, an Israeli guest and I'm Palestinian and we met up after and we chatted. And, you know, we might have a lot of our differences, but it was, you know, common goal that how can we help out these refugees? And we have our own issues to talk about, right? So... 
how how is the food helping to mitigate the differences around the table? Well, it's really good. <laughs> it is good. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I guess when people come hungry, right, they have one goal, right? <laughs> Satisfy my appetite. Um, it's, I, I don't know what other way we can bring together people from so many different uh, avenues to kind of come together without having to worry about politics with a topic that's it's, Maybe, that's an interesting thing to say because it's like the politics are the point, right? Yeah, and but it. Yeah. Uh, uh, what? No, no, go ahead. Yeah, and it's like to to the masses, right? Everybody thinks it's political when you say the word migrant refugee because we've attributed that that displacement to political uh, destabilization, but it's not. It's people, you know. And this is why, like we've seen, we've witnessed it. Ninety nine percent where just people just shift and they're able, they're touched. Mm-hmm. At some capacity. And they realize that it's not politics after these dinners. And then I guess... Is that all it takes? Just like a full satisfied belly? I, I guess so. <laughs> also yeah. also being reasonably priced. People in New York go out to eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we also did DC and it was very successful. But, you know, in New York people go out to eat and they spend uh, the price of the ticket isn't uh, marginalizing them. It's $65. So anybody across any spectrum... And, able, and is able to come out for a dinner experience like that, um, which is different than, let's say, the dinners are $500 a plate. And I've done charity dinners where like that, you know. But, you know, that usually attracts a different type of crowd, different kind of photo ops, different kind of, you know. And I'm not trying to do it. I'm trying to bring it to the masses. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. And also don't forget that they're going to go out to eat anyway. They might as well, I guess, you know, they'll be in, more incentivized to come here because I'm trying to start a foodie revolution, <laughs> really. Um Foodies are great people. They love, like, they're kind-hearted, they're amazing, they love food. But, you know, they're not necessarily engaged in grassroots movements. They're not out protesting. There's a lot of them who are working 18-hour days. They're not, uh, you know, involved in that way. But they want to. And this is an avenue for them to do what they like, which is the food groups. I mean, I think the meetup groups for food have at least, like, 15,000 people in it, much more than anything else um, prior, I guess, to the election. You know, now probably people are more woke. I'm still a fob. They're more Wookiees. I am a fob at heart. And yeah. <laughs> so, um, I yeah. mean, but there is the argument that, you know, people do like to go out to dinner to escape. That's yes. true. And they're, you know, to those people maybe who are working 12 yeah, hour days. I mean, sometimes people don't want their food to be political. Very sure. But, but they're not escaping um, politics. Unfortunately, they're, they're no. escaping yeah. corporate America. Mm. But, that's a, that's another thing I guess to to mention. Also, I mean, don't forget, you know, if we you know embrace the system we are in, or the capitalism, we are a consumer society. So what happens is that if I bring in ten people in a room, I'm like, how can you help out this person? They probably wouldn't know how. But if I tell them, hey, buy this thing. If you buy it, you will help this person out. I guarantee you, Americans will buy it because we have been taught since we were, we were kids, or at least in our systems, that we are people of good. We always strive for what is good and what is moral. But being practical, we also want something that is efficient. This is, I, th- I think, was uh, George Schultz's policy, like when he spoke about like what is foreign policy to Americans. And it's true. You know, you want to do good and moral, but at the same time, you want to be efficient. So how do you find the balance of both? And then, and then back to your point about like escape. Um, I think from, and I'll speak for myself, and I'm sure there's a segment of people out there who, who can relate. Sometimes I want to escape from the, the realities that are being presented to me on TV as 
as reality uh-huh. when it's not. And maybe I want to escape from that continuous cycle that keeps going. And I want to hear something different. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and maybe that's a form of escape for many people. Right. And to do it over a meal. Yes, politics and, and all that's going on in the world, it does kind of, it does put a cloud over your head because everything that's being talked about is su- super negative. And then are like this, you know. It's such a good story. Yeah, and, you know, you're resilient, you know, and as Nasser pointed out, it's like the underdog story. Yeah. Right? It, it can Lutfi, never go wrong. and just to, you know, just to explain real quick, like, actually, why don't you speak to it? I know Lutfi isn't, he isn't here, but if you could just quickly kind of like summarize that story yeah i mean lutfi you know he's from syria uh he and he's the he's like the the featured chef well he's the only one who can talk to the press okay you know we had a lot we had a lot of refugees that can't talk to the press for their own reasons either that they're still seeking like if they're political asylum seekers there's still cases in progress or that they just you know we had a syrian refugees who have all the paperwork ready but they just don't feel good talking to their press they're conservative women We've had also um, somebody which we cannot, you know, talk about, mention their name or anything, but they're they ran away from El Salvador from the MS-13 gangs. I mean, that's another type of whole refugee situation. But ironically, um, we glorify narcos and vilify ISIS, right? So people mm. usually who come to those dinners are like, "Tell me what happened with the MS-13 gangs," and they're more fascinated with the narco life versus like the story of like the migrant worker who fled the collateral you know, yeah, you know I mean yeah. where you know you'll get a lot of empathy and a lot of like oh my god they're bombing your family like in Syria like and there's it's a different way different crowd anyhow um, so Lutfi uh, who has been the, you know the most visible in the news uh, he is gay so he left um, you know Syria a while went to the UAE went to Bahrain then went to the UAE and I was arrested for being gay multiple times and ended up in Egypt. And uh, Lutfi is, you know, it's interesting that a story because it explains the entire movement of the Arab world and how come the Arab world did not support any refugees. I mean, Jordan took in a lot. They always do. But like the Arab Gulf didn't, you know, like Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, Qatar. And why did a lot of refugees end up in Egypt? I mean, history, in a way, also tells that because there was a no-visa policy between Syrians and Egyptians, and it was in place since this unification of the United Arab Republic in the 60s and 70s. Eventually, when the dictator Sisi came to power, he changed all of that. And because there was a lot of issues in Europe with people going on boats, Europe didn't have a solution to the migrant problem, so they started throwing money at it via NGOs. And now, basically, governments like Egypt you know, pick up the tab and say, we are taking all of theirs of all these refugees, and therefore we need this much economic aid packages, you know? So it, it became, this is basically the deal what's happening. So he explains all of that, and it's, it's interesting. But like Samir in D.C. and his wife Rana are the most phenomenal couple I've ever seen, the most powerful story. This is a man who is handicapped, who is a cheesemaker, met his wife, fell in love deeply with her. She accepted him regardless. I mean, in the Arab world where there's still taboos about being handicapped and whatnot, fell in love. And, you know, he didn't want to beg for money in Egypt when he ended up there. He started making cheese in his home and selling it door to door. And then he ends up in Washington, D.C. and doing the same thing. Mm. So that's, a, that's the American way. That's the American story, right? The yeah. underdog who can overcome anything. So two different stories. He, uh, Samir comes from Homs. Homs was the first city to rebel against Assad. They were rebelling against his cousin who was the governor for corruption. This is before it turned into a civil war. This is when they were just protesting 2011. 
and Homs has a different accent, an accent that Damascus people can tell it's uh, as not as soft. So when he fled to Damascus, he was being blamed as a man from Homs for the, you know, the uprising, saying, "Yeah, you people destroyed the country." You know, there was a lot of infighting before the civil war. So, so it's interesting to discuss all these elements between Lutfi and Samir. Lutfi, of course, appeals to a different type of crowd in New York, right? So, you know, New York is, is, a, is a hub, you know, of the LGBTQ community. There's a lot of love, there's a lot of support. You know, I don't know if we would be able to get the same amount of turnout for Lutfi dinners, I don't know, in Kansas, maybe. You know, that's something to talk about. But Samir in D.C., for example, brought in a lot of people who love politics. D.C. was a very political hub. People already knew everything. I didn't have to explain it. So it's interesting to see... Um, the dynamics of the guests and the refugee in that dinner. Yeah. Guys, we have to take a real quick break, and then um, we'll be back to hear about the Refugee Food and Art Festival that's coming up. Perfect. So, get back. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. been listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host, Sari Kamen, and I have uh, Naz and Jabber from Comida, and they have a refugee food and art festival coming up very soon, so Jabber, why don't you tell us about that? Yes, so um, I'm inspired by the Displaced uh, Dinners, later named Displaced Kitchens Movement, uh, we figured, you know, how could we make a statement, and... Uh, you know, Nasser brought it to my attention that the general UN General Assembly was taking place from the 12th to the 25th, and we thought, okay, why not put together a festival, just kind of send a little message. Um, so the idea behind this is kind of enrich the community, get people into to learn more and engage and interact with refugees and organizations that work with them. Um, we're going to be having uh, a few displaced kitchen uh, events uh, throughout the festival, brunches and dinners. Um, and we're bringing in uh, uh, refugee migrant-based culinary groups to come in and show, showcase their work and bring in the refugees, share their stories. Um, we're going to have different bites from different conflict zones 
stations where nonprofit organizations and groups can talk about what they're doing, giving information about the conflict zones, um, and then also some entertainment uh, with cultural art, uh, music, and we have uh, creative groups coming in to kind of showcase their work. Uh, one of the groups called uh, Writing Up Front, um, and they, they draw out uh, paintings kind of relative to the uh, refugee migrant crisis, and we're going to be posting up those posters throughout. Um, I Am Your Protector is another group. Um, they showcase the, the good in everybody, regardless of race and religion, just showing how people has a, have other people's backs. Um, so that, that will be there. Um, so the idea is like this immersive educational experience, right? Come in, have some bites, have a few drinks, hang out, feel good. You know, learn all the, about what's going on. Yeah. So when is it? Where is it? And how do we yes. get tickets? So uh, dates are Friday, uh, September 22nd through Sunday, September 24th. Um, that's going to be at uh, the Food Arts Center at FedCap at 210 East 43rd Street, um, literally two blocks away from the UN. Um, and you can get tickets by heading to comida.com. And you will find a, a series link and you'll find a Refugee Food Arts Festival. And all the events will be listed on that page. You'll have uh, tickets to the dinners and brunches and then general uh, general admission as well. Okay. And then what about just getting involved with, like, the Displaced Dinner Series and just staying in touch with you guys? How do we do that? Uh, well, everybody can email me at naz at comida.com. Uh, comida with a K. K-O-M-E-E-D-A dot com. Yeah. And um, in terms of, you know, supporting, I one of the things why Displace Kitchens and it worked out really is that because it doesn't take um, a lot out of people's day to do this. And it also does not out of their way. So one thing that, you know, we have to mention is that we always invite select guests, for example, even if we pay their ticket that, for example, have access to jobs or have access to or, you know, anything that, you know, that can help the refugee. And that has always helped out the refugee. So if you work, if you know anybody in the workforce agency or employment agencies, housing agencies, those are all important because a lot of refugees, you know, were unable to find jobs or work or places to live. Also, if you're not in New York to join the festival, you know, definitely uh, support our cookbook. We have a cookbook coming out in which we will showcase the entire culinary cuisine of all displaced people. And even people who are not necessarily mentioned um, in the current crisis. I mean, like Armenians, Palestinians, you know, people who have already have a history of, of suffering, you know, so. Yeah. There's a lot of really good ways to get involved and support. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah we're, we're trying to find every opportunity yeah. that we can get people involved in the most minimal way. Yeah, and uh, support the organizations that do government work on the ground. Like, you know, governments are not going to talk to displaced kitchens. They're going to talk to the IRC. They're going to talk to the IOM. They're going to talk to the UN. I understand that people have a lot of problems with bureaucracy within these organizations, but believe me, they do a lot of great work. Without their work, people will not be safe. They are, they are overworked, understaffed, and underfunded Please support them as much as you can, especially the IRC. It's so very proud for an American organization to be doing what they're doing. And then to add, it's, uh, for, for us to be able to help those organizations, I think uh, one thing that we've seen prevalent in, in America and the world are grassroots movements, right? Because uh, people are losing confidence in kind of governments and institutions. But to support organizations such as the IRC, we feel like, you know, through Displaced Kitchens and other organizations, like we could kind of expand that message of those big organizations through our networks. Yeah. So, you know, if you feel like you can't really get up there with those organizations, 
it doesn't hurt to start your own and try something out. Yeah. Um, well, guys, thank you so much for thank coming you. on the show. It was such a pleasure to have you. And I just love that you're the, the first show of the second season. I think thank it was a perfect honored. way to kick it off. I couldn't ask for a better guest. So thank you. I'm excited <laughs> to see you at the festival next weekend. Likewise. Thank yeah, you so much. Amazing. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We are on Wednesdays. We're going to be switching to 7 p.m. EST starting next week. So take a note of that. And then also download the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, Food Without Borders. Uh, and keep listening here on Heritage Radio Network. We'll we'll see you next week. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.